Welcome to Sharp Waves, a podcast from the International League Against Epilepsy. Our episodes cover epilepsy research, clinical care, career development, and issues in diagnosis and treatment from around the globe. This is one episode, but two stories. We begin with a researcher interested in the relationship between sleep patterns and seizures in the Arctic. He conducts a study to look for answers, focusing on an isolated region of northern Canada. He's looking at cases of status epilepticus, an emergency condition in which someone has persistent seizures for many minutes, hours, and sometimes days. He wants to know, do the extreme changes in daylight length have an impact on seizure severity? The data are not what he expects. Why are there so many people? Um, we have way too many people than we expected. And it seems like we stumbled into this um, uh, almost public health crisis without knowing it because we have a lot of data points, but each of those data points is a person, a person who needs medical treatment and has to be flown thousands of kilometers away. We were looking for a scientific circadian day-night seizure question, and then it became a question of why are there so many people seizing up there? That's Dr. Marcus Eng. He's Associate Professor of Neurology and Director of the DreamSpike Research Laboratory at the University of Manitoba. We talked with him about his 2021 publication on status epilepticus in the Kivalik region of Nunavut, Canada. There, anyone in status epilepticus is flown by helicopter to a single hospital in Winnipeg, Manitoba. His research focused on 11 years of data on these emergency evacuations. Here's Dr. Eng. The point of this whole project initially was to look at the distribution of seizures in sleep, because uh, sleep and epilepsy is my particular research interest. And uh, my mentor at the Brigham in Boston um, is a circadian rhythms expert. So we thought, what better environment to go about looking at this than in the Arctic, or I guess, in theory, the Antarctic, where winter and summer are extremes. Uh, summer is 24-hour daylight, winter is 24-hour uh, night, and seeing how seizures are impacted by this, whether they get worse if it's all sun all the time, or they get worse if it's all dark all the time, and seeing if this has an impact on uh, status epilepticus, seizure severity. So that was how this project came about. And it was sort of on a whim. You know, we got ethics approval just to look at what we thought was going to be a very small data set. The data set was not small. They saw about 10 cases of status epilepticus each year in a population of only just about 10,000 people. This translated to the highest annual incidence of status epilepticus of any published study anywhere in the world, and it was significantly higher than overall Canadian estimates. Statistics Canada uh, published a nationwide prevalence survey back in 2016 uh, based on a community survey back in 2011 that had a lot of uh, caveats and disclaimers about how they got their data. It excluded the Arctic territories. It excluded persons uh, in the armed forces. It was um, so, sort of better than nothing. And um, that national prevalence data showed a, a level that was in line with an industrialized country. 
Um, but looking at a, I guess, a, a pure data set here where uh, we are, by virtue of, I guess, healthcare infrastructure situated at a bottleneck where all the patients are flown here, uh, we're able to look at a single site and come up with, I would say, a more representative number. And that number is a lot higher uh, than, than the nationally quoted average. And in fact, it's it's in line with um, uh, low to middle income countries around the world. Uh, in, in the article, um, it does look at other published literature on status epilepticus, but keeping in mind that those studies are mostly biased towards high income countries. And, and so relative to those countries, uh, Nunavut would have the highest published uh, rate of status epilepticus to date. Now, I'm not saying um, that should be the take-home message because I'm sure it's just a matter of time before someone else uh, finds a higher rate somewhere else. But as of this moment in the published literature, with all the biases that holds, uh, the highest rate of status epilepticus would be in Nunavut, Canada. Most studies of status epilepticus find that about 40% of people have a history of epilepsy. This study found only 16% had a history of epilepsy. What are some of the hypotheses or speculation that you could provide as to why that number is so low? Yeah, I, I like that word, uh, speculation, because that's pretty much what we have at this point. Um, I, I, I guess I would caution, first of all, that while relatively the numbers are very high, um, absolutely, we're dealing with a very small population. So we have around 10,000 people in total in the Nunavut uh, region in particular. So uh, geographically, Nunavut has three different regions, and the one region that is serviced by uh, the healthcare center I'm at, the Kivalik region, uh, has has a population of, I think, the 10,000 there. Um, so within that 10,000 people, there is a disproportionately high number of people who are flown out for status. And then, like you say, 16%, um, only 16% had a history of epilepsy once they came down to Winnipeg and we looked at their charts, whereas the number, like you say, should be around 40%. It's sort of eerie how all the studies agree on that number sort of independently, like just looking at the epilepsy history, some a little bit higher, some a little bit lower, but it's around 40%. So um, in the study, I guess there's some speculation about uh what would have happened if we just assumed that, you know, the people being flown down had the 40% and we redid the math and it would end up being, you know, like everyone has epilepsy in Kivalik, which is unlikely, or um, we're missing a lot of people who uh, would have been diagnosed had they uh, received uh, care sooner, or there was greater awareness of epilepsy versus a seizure. And we do speculate about um, how there's uh, limited knowledge of when seizures become epilepsy. And it seems like uh, just because seizures are so endemic to that area, there might be familiarity on the ground with a seizure, but when it's epilepsy is completely unknown. So when to take action to prevent a seizure as opposed to just reacting to a seizure or even normalizing the occurrence of seizures, um, that all remains to be explored. About 90% of people in the Kivalik region are indigenous, most of them Inuit. If there's an epilepsy diagnosis gap, it could be partly due to the historical mistrust of Western medicine. That's a huge other issue that, that adds to the dynamic between Western medicine and 
awareness of epilepsy and prevention of injury that can come from seizures. And as with many other cultures around the world, people in the Kivalik region may hold beliefs that seizures stem from some type of supernatural cause rather than a medical one. But Dr. Eng says it's oversimplifying to assume that the entire region views seizures in the same way. My personal interactions with Nunavut has, have mostly come through patients who are flown down um, on an elective basis where they're still conscious and not sedated because of status epilepticus. But um, uh, I, I guess, uh, you know, I've, I've heard personal stories about um, uh, sort of a, a like, like you mentioned, a supernatural framework where, where there's almost a, a shamanistic sort of approach to understanding these phenomena. I, I can't say I can say anything more about the specifics of how individual seizures are interpreted in the Kivalik region. And I, I almost feel like it's a bit of a fallacy to lump the whole region together. They, they are um, settlements which are geographically very isolated from each other. They're hundreds of kilometers apart with no roads. Um, so any interaction with one another requires air and... Um, I don't know if we're even dealing with uh, microcultures within each settlement and to what degree the um, uh, beliefs in each settlement dictate how often or whether one at all seeks care for seizures. You heard that, right? These are isolated communities, hundreds of kilometers apart, no roads. How does someone in status epilepticus get care? So if someone has a seizure in one of the communities in the Kivalik region and, and they choose to uh, seek care or someone brings them to care because it is recognized as, as a, an emergency, um, so assuming they get to medical attention, then there usually is a nursing station at each uh, community. I'm not aware of a, of a formal hospital facility. Uh, the nursing station might act as a clinic, and then the nursing station... Um, would be staffed by uh, a locum. So usually there's not a permanent uh, practitioner there, although I could be mistaken. There's seven communities. They might have seven different systems. But usually, in my experience, it's been a locum who uh, comes by every few months. For most of the communities in Kevalik, the nursing station is the center of medical care. The largest community in Kevalik does have a health center, not a hospital, staffed by two or three physicians. And the second largest community also has a full-time physician, but the other communities do not. They use these traveling physicians, locum tenens, who appear for about a week at a time um, every couple of months. And then that uh, locum tenens would have to uh, seek additional uh, medical advice or medical support to fly out the patient. And then that's where I think the interaction with non-Nunavut systems occurs, which then opens up the discussion to the federal versus provincial jurisdiction of healthcare in Canada. So I think healthcare is a provincial jurisdiction. So here in Manitoba, um, things are run in a completely different way than, say, Ontario or Quebec. And uh, in the territories, though, they're not provinces. So in, in some way, which I'm not an expert on, healthcare is delivered through a federal mechanism, and then there could be additional um, Indigenous-specific mechanisms on top or parallel to that federal system. 
And then it becomes a matter of um, catchment areas. So then the Kivalik region is covered by uh, Winnipeg. And so they end up being flown to Winnipeg if the need is determined on medical grounds that the person has to be flown out, which typically, yes, because they have limited facilities to um, start treatment and make sure the treatment's effective. And when they come here, then by the time they're in super refractory status or just refractory status, uh, they're in the intensive care unit. So we're dealing with uh, sort of a last minute intervention to prevent uh, terminal injury or death in an emergency situation and not so much taking a preventative aspect, sort of outreach with uh, looking at people who've had a seizure or a few seizures and seeing how we can prevent status. It's more at the other end where someone's in status, it's unstoppable, they have to be flown out and then they come here. So what does the treatment course look like for someone who presents with status epilepticus to a nursing station? How much can be done there and how much has to wait until Winnipeg? Most people are treated in the nursing station or in the medevac or both, um, but it's empiric treatment and there's a high level of discomfort. Uh, for, for instance, um, they might be given a benzodiazepine and uh, the, the nursing station might not have um, phenytoin to load with. And so they have to be flown out to get that phenytoin. Um, or even if they have phenytoin, if the patient's not waking up, then the concern is maybe they're in non-convulsive status. And then how can they verify that the patient has actually stopped seizing uh, in a subclinical way, which requires EEG. And again, they have to be flown out. Um, so even though empiric treatment has started before they're flown out or during the flying out process, it has to be verified in uh, a, a different setting, which here is Winnipeg. And that is the time delay quoted in the paper. So the title of your paper mentions a public health imperative hidden in plain sight. And I'm guessing you're referring to the fact that we usually think about um, areas of the world that require attention to improving epilepsy care as low resource countries. But here's Kivalik, part of one of the wealthiest nations in the world, and it has the highest so far documented rate of status epilepticus, as well as some clear barriers to timely diagnosis and treatment. So how do we talk about this in a useful way? Yeah, those are excellent points and, and great questions. And I think probably the first step is breaking down the, the heuristic that countries are single monolithic blocks. Uh, I mean, I guess with so much diversity in the world, politically, it's convenient to think of countries as a cohesive unit, but really there's so much diversity within them. It's probably worth looking at, at specific regions uh, not simply to get a more accurate snapshot of that country as a unit, but also to look at how different units being countries are addressing issues within each of themselves and then applying those lessons to other places in the world and seeing if, if they work or if they can be approved upon. A second point is to look at uh, persons without countries per se. So what I'm getting at is the um, indigenous populations, indigenous populations who don't necessarily, um, uh, I guess, automatically become attributed to a political unit. They might, they might straddle political borders. 
and have uh, ancestral homelands in different places. Persons who are not um, strictly associated with a political unit or a country, there should be focus on those people too, which I guess would also include refugees and also people who are um, uh, escaping persecution or violence. Um, so these populations marginalized, I think, should be uh, looked at too. Um, so those are the two main points I would I, that come to mind right now. So let's go back to the journey of someone with status epilepticus in Kavalik. They arrive at a nursing station. They are helicoptered to Winnipeg, and then what happens next? They have to deal with healthcare challenges at home, and then once they're flown to a southern part of the country, they face the challenges in Manitoba. So that that is a double whammy that's additionally unfair to them. So by analogy, uh, persons living in uh, in the Arctic territory of the Yukon, they would be flown down to British Columbia. Um, and persons in Arctic territory of the Northwest Territories would be flown down to the to the southern province of Alberta. Um, and and so they, given that Alberta and British Columbia have more resources than Manitoba, there would be less of a double whammy, if a double whammy at all. Um, for status epilepticus, I think in an emergency situation, we have um, an intensive care unit and we have EEG. So I think that is all right. That that's of course before COVID. With COVID, everything's kind of. Um, uh, all bets are off. But even before COVID, it's where the prevention comes in. So the prevention of recognizing epilepsy, looking at anti-seizure medications, the role of epilepsy surgery, preventing status in that large subset of status people who have epilepsy. Um, that aspect, I think, was uh, trying. Um, at the moment, there is no epilepsy monitoring unit in Manitoba for adults. Because if you're a patient from Nunavut, let's say you have a number of seizures, they're getting more, uh, they're, they're impacting your life, and you want to do something about them, you, you go to your nursing station, you're able to get continuity of care and a referral down to Winnipeg, you're able to see a neurologist in Winnipeg, and you're admitted there, uh, there were two beds for 1.5 million people, even after going through that entire process, if you're deemed to be a surgical candidate, then you're hit with the additional need for referral somewhere else in the country to have the process mostly repeated to see if neurosurgery is offered to you. So this is one episode, two stories. Let's go back to the first story and the original question. Do dramatic changes in daylight affect seizure frequency or seizure severity? In February 2022, Dr. Eng and colleagues published research that analyzed the 11 years of data on status epilepticus in Kavalik. If there were no annual pattern, they should have seen about 8 or 9% of all evacuations occurring in each of the 12 months. Instead, they found that fully 19% of the evacuations took place in May, the first full month of the year with 24-hour daylight. Some other analyses showed clusterings of evacuations in April, and the research suggests that these increases may be due to people getting less sleep due to more daylight. Um, I am really, really curious about how extreme variations in day and night and light and dark affect seizure frequency, um, and then the interaction between possible genetic polymorphisms in populations who have historically lived under these conditions and seeing if they differ from uh, those people who 
are not subject to these conditions. So in the future, you know, I would hope to uh, look at the epidemiology of status epilepticus at, say, the equator versus the poles. And if they differ, is there a latitudinal effect on seizures and epilepsy? Um, looking at, um, are there actual genetic polymorphisms that can account for um, different susceptibilities to seizures? And a study there could be looking at uh, um, recent newcomers to the Arctic versus those who have their ancestral homelands in the Arctic and looking at uh, if seizures differ in that regard. Um, an interesting parallel in the study was looking at Finland. Uh, so Finland's at the same latitude, uh, Kuopio, and, and they have a high rate of status epilepticus as well in their publication recently, which is kind of interesting because latitudinally, they're in the same region, but socioeconomically and genetically, it's a very different population. So I think there's a number of collaborations that could uh, be forged, not just politically or from an advocacy standpoint, but also scientifically uh, based on the studies. The Finland study was published in 2019 in the journal Epilepsy and Behavior. You can find links to all the studies we talked about in the show notes to this episode. Thanks for listening to Sharp Waves. Our content is meant for informational purposes only and not as medical or clinical advice. The International League Against Epilepsy is the world's preeminent association of health professionals and scientists working toward a world where no person's life is limited by epilepsy. Find more Sharp Waves episodes wherever you get your podcasts or at ilae.org.